I'm Ellie Taylor and welcome to Deal With It, a podcast that boldly addresses some of the most important issues that we so often choose to ignore, why we shouldn't ignore them and what we can do about them. Brought to you by Corsidal Toothpaste. Gum disease affects at least 50% of adults. It can cause bad breath and bleeding gums and left untreated can lead to receding gums and eventually tooth loss. And yet we know two thirds of sufferers ignore this serious problem. Corsidal toothpaste is here to help. When used twice daily, it's clinically proven to help stop and prevent bleeding gums. So get on with it and deal with it. Today, we tackle a subject that still makes many people squirm. There are a whole host of benefits to a healthy sex life, including improved heart health, reduced stress, improved immune system, and an improved overall sense of well-being. Yet reports suggest 20% of couples are in sexless relationships. And let's be honest, even the most liberated of us know what it's like to experience a dry spell. So in this episode, we're going to be chatting all about practical things you can do to improve your sex life how to troubleshoot any awkward issues and the steps you can take to get back in the saddle. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by award-winning feminist author, certified sex coach, sexologist, an amazing title, and educator, Gigi Engel. So Gigi, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, how does one become a sexologist? Uh, It's a pretty rigorous process of becoming a certified sex educator. A sexologist is somebody who treats clients for a variety of uh, sexual concerns, everything from libido to um, discrepancies in desire to how to use sex toys to kink-friendly options in the bedroom. So it's a pretty wide-ranging field. Well, the life you lead, Gigi. I mean, I've just descaled my kettle. It's a very different way of uh, living, isn't it? Um, <laughs> let's start straight in then. Um, to, I mean, we, we, I spoke about this in the introduction, that 20% of couples are in sexless relationships, which sounds like a, a really high amount. But I suppose maybe we should define what, what a sexless relationship is. Is it is it as it sounds? There's no sex at all. Is it a small amount of sex? Uh, how would you view it? A sexless relationship is usually defined as a relationship where people in the relationship have sex one or less times per year. Uh, That's like the clinical definition of what sexless would be, but it's actually pretty subjective. Like what one person defines as sexless could mean that they have sex once a month. For someone else, it could mean once every six months. And it's really going to be the people inside of a certain relationship that are going to decide that for themselves because people want sex different amounts. And so what constitutes not having sex is going to be subjective to each couple. Sure. And so you talked about about people wanting sex different amounts. I I think, uh, you know, mismatched libidos are something that will often cause issues in a relationship. How do you go uh, about sort of helping people when that comes up? Libidos are always going to be different. There's this kind of weird idea Um, that we've gotten from movies, from society, from media that are like, everybody should have this perfect relationship that's something out of a fairy tale where like you both want sex the exact same amount. And if one of you doesn't want sex, then there's something wrong with you or you're you're broken. And actually having mismatched libidos is extremely common. So when people come to me and they want to work on libido issues, first of all, it's just good that they're coming to me in the first place because seeking help for something shows that that's something that you actually want to work on. And libido discrepancy can be worked on because a lot of the time what happens is that people who have issues with desire or experience low libido 
has a lot to do with how that they don't understand their sexual response. So there are two different kinds of desire. There's responsive desire and there is sporadic desire or spontaneous desire. Spontaneous desire is the one that you, uh, or it's probably the one that people think of the most. It's like when you just become turned on or you get horny kind of like randomly, whereas responsive desire, which is the way that the vast majority of clitoris owners and women and people raised female, this is the kind of desire they have, which is where you need to have some kind of intimacy, some kind of erotic material in front of you or listen to something erotic to actually get you in the mood for sex. So figuring out how you respond to sexual stimuli is like the number one way to start figuring out what it is that you need to get turned on. And when couples start to make that journey together, they can start to figure out ways to compromise with each other. Because another big problem is that the person who has the lower libido tends to be the one who calls the shots. But really, sex is a co-created experience between two partners and giving the person with the low libido an out of your sexuality just because they're not feeling it is like not a way to solve your problems. It leaves the other person feeling bereft and feeling like they're not getting what they want and feeling like they're like they're crazy for wanting to have sex with their partner. And the other person feels broken and like they aren't giving the other person what they want. And they don't know how to fix it. So you need to be able to compromise. And I know that that sounds like cheesy, but finding things within your sexuality that you can actually compromise about like maybe one person says like three times a week would be enough for them when they would rather have it every single day. Whereas one person's like, I would be happy having it once a month, but I could probably do like twice a week. And you guys can work together to figure out what it is that would work for both of you so that both of you can feel intimate. Um, The last thing that I have a conversation with couples about and try to get them to gear away from this idea that intercourse is the most important form of sexual expression. We have a very odd idea inside of our (laughs) ideas about sex in, in this very sex negative culture where intercourse is considered like the, it's considered sex, like everything else is not sex or it's not enough or it's not good enough where sex is supposed to be this big show. And you have something even in the language, the way that we express sexuality, like the word foreplay suggests that oral sex and hand sex and masturbation are not equal to intercourse. There's something that comes before intercourse because intercourse is like the big show. And so when you put sex inside of those terms, it causes an enormous amount of pressure. And it also creates a really bad, like heteronormative Uh, language around sexuality. And when people are pressured to have intercourse all the time, that's not even the way that the vast majority of people who have a clitoris, that's not the way that we even have orgasms. So that's another thing that's going to make you have low desire. Like if you feel like every time you have sex, you're not even going to get off and you don't derive pleasure from it, it's not going to make you want to do it. Sex really needs to be made a priority. It needs to be something that we all give. Otherwise, it gets put on the wayside and otherwise your entire relationship will fall apart and suffer if you don't give it what it needs. I remember reading something once that said uh, when things are going well, it makes up about 5% of the relationship, like how much you sort of think about it. When it's going badly in a relationship, um, sex becomes about 95% of the relationship. Uh, Very true. And sexuality is the thing that's, that is separates our, our relationships into romantic relationships and friendships. I suppose also I think people get um, focused on how much sex other people are having. I think that becomes um, something that makes people can make people feel bad about how much sex they're having. Do you think there's a, a normal amount? And do you think it's ever helpful to compare? 
I think we get really, really hung up on this idea of being, quote, like normal or being regular, or trying to be like this normal couple who has sex this number of times. And as long as you have sex, sex in this case, being intercourse a certain number of times a week, like you don't have to worry about it. Like everything's fine. And you'll see statistics and articles all over the place that usually say somewhere around like one to three times a week is a normal amount of time to be having sex. But all of that is complete BS. Like it's completely arbitrary. What makes a normal amount of sex for somebody is that it's when both people inside of a relationship, assuming that it's a couple, are having sex the amount that they want to be having and are having the kind of sex that they want to be having and are having lots of pleasure and orgasms together. As long as both people are happy with the amount, whether it's once a week, once a month, once a year, it really doesn't matter as long as both people are happy. It's when somebody is feeling an imbalance or one person is unsatisfied or both people are unsatisfied, that's when you should see that there's a problem. It's not about getting to some magic number and no amount of following a statistic is going to make you have a normal relationship. <laughs> sure. And talking about imbalance, the stats on heterosexual relationships and the the fact that women have uh, way less orgasms than men, known as the orgasm gap, apparently, which I'd never heard of before, a bit like the gender pay gap, but potentially less sexy. How do we close that gap? And why Why does that gap exist in the first place? It's, it's a complex issue, but it kind of boils down to one simple fact, which is that we know absolutely nothing about the clitoris. We have horrible sex education and we don't talk about the clitoris. We don't talk about pleasure. And the pleasure center for women and female-bodied people is the clitoris. And without external clitoral stimulation, the official stat says about 70% of women will not have orgasms, but Truthfully, it's more like 85 to 95%. And when you see things like porn, which has become our default sex education and is not really porn's fault because porn never claimed to be sex education. Porn is entertainment. Look in it, but it is the only thing we have because nobody wants to talk about sex. It is quite genuinely like looking at the fast and the furious and being like, oh, I get it. I can drive a car now. <laughs> and like, we have these very strange ideas about like what sexuality is. And no one is telling you about sex. No one's explaining a clitoris. No one is explaining pleasure. No one is talking about consent and mutual egalitarianism in the bedroom, you're going to, by default, think that that's what's supposed to give orgasms. And therefore, you have all these people with penises and men having orgasms because they have them through intercourse. And meanwhile, women and those raised female and those with clitorises are like, I don't understand what's going on because my body is not responding the way that I see these women in porn responding. There's a lot, I think there's a lot of pressure um, put on women to make blokes feel like they have satisfied them and this you know obviously goes back to the harry met sally scene of the faking it do you think that's part of it as well that we feel like we have to pretend whether you have or haven't you know had the best time of your life that you have Absolutely. And it, it goes back to that like lack of education, lack of understanding around sexuality. We are and because we live in this very patriarchal society, no matter like what people want to say about it, we do live in a patriarchy. And women are taught that their sexual pleasure and their sexual happiness is subjugated to that of their male partner. So as long as their male partner has an orgasm, sex was satisfactory. If they have an orgasm, that's good, but it is definitely not necessary for sex to be good. And a lot of sex that you see in porn and the stuff that we are pressured as women to feel because we're not feeling the pleasure we're supposedly supposed to be having 
things. So we don't want anyone to think we're broken. So we come up with these wild orgasm noises and these performative like moans and stuff, which doesn't do anyone any good because then your partner thinks they're doing a great job when they suck at it and you're not having a good time. And then no one's having a good time. And we're all just pretending we are. (laughs) So we've spoken about the female taboo, which is the orgasm gap and the male taboos around sex are erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation that are always sort of the butt of jokes in uh, anything you see in movies or, or the or TV shows, but it seems like it's such an embarrassing problem. And it's, it's made to seem like it's the end of the world if this happens to a man and we must treat any man who experiences this, you know, really gently and sort of tiptoe around the issue because we, we can't make things worse. We don't want to risk it. Why is it sort of such a weird, stressy subject? I mean, the first thing we have to do is like pretty much erase all of these toxic ideas that we have around masculinity because the idea that like the male ego is so fragile that we have to like use baby hands around it. Like, oh, don't scare the male ego. Don't scare the penis. (laughs) It's like, it's just completely ridiculous. And like we don't, and it doesn't do men any good because it doesn't teach them the emotional intelligence that they need to actually enjoy sex because they are too feeling the exact same pressures from watching porn. They're seeing these buff dudes with gigantic, unrealistically huge penises that stay erect for like a ungodly amount of time. (laughs) And, and they're not taught how to actually pleasure their partner. So they have all this pressure on themselves and they don't actually get to enjoy sex either because it is so based on this performative model of sexuality, how long your erection lasts, how hard it is. And if men didn't feel so pressured, we would have a lot less erectile dysfunction and a lot less premature ejaculation. Oh, I'm infuriated on behalf of society right now. Um, and I think like that sort of make, makes me think about the fact that porn is so sort of widespread for sort of teenagers coming of age and discovering their sexuality. Their sort of knowledge of sex really is truly and only based in on porn. And I've heard male, um, male impotence in young men is gone really high because of the fact that they're so used to watching porn. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, especially with young adolescent adolescents, both male and female, but in this instance, young men, they, their brains are not totally developed yet. And when you see like all, when your sensory input is constantly this like really intense imagery and you're using your hand, which you often young boys are grabbing it with like the death grip of life. It makes it like, (laughs) it's like, it's like, it doesn't damage your nerve endings. It doesn't make you incapable of having real sex. It doesn't make you incapable of having less stimulus, but it, it it does hardwire you to need that kind of stimulation in order to have an orgasm, in order to ejaculate. And so you have to like reteach young men, how to experience sexuality, how to change up the way they touch themselves and get them away from pornography because it's not going to be healthy for you. Blimey. Okay. Now, obviously with the COVID-19 this year in 2020, um, people are being stuck at home with their partners. Um, And have you got any advice for people sort of living in the pockets of their partners now? How can you keep sort of the flame alive when you are constantly arguing about wiping Weetabix off the kitchen surfaces, not using any personal examples, obviously. <laughs> I mean, I think the that you need to make sure that you're keeping your, having as much separate time as you possibly can. Even, I know that that's easier said than done, especially with children, but like maybe one of you takes the kids or 
child in the morning and one of you has them in the afternoon so that the other person can have actual time to themselves, even if it's just for a couple of hours. Because having time separated from each other, even when you're in close confines, is absolutely essential to creating erotic spark. Because when you're on top of each other constantly, you immediately become like desensitized and bored to to like the excitement that you need to have erotic energy. So that would be like my number one thing. Also, uh, like there's so many tools that are available to kind of like keep changing things up. Uh, Dr. Justin Lee Miller, who's a psychologist, he came up with this term called the Coolidge effect, which is that when we lose sexual novelty and we stop having excitement in our sex lives, our immediate reaction as humans is to become bored. And that's one of the main reasons we lose sexual interest in our partners, which can be a huge factor in low libido. So in these instances, especially during something like COVID-19, now is the time to be like experimenting and getting weird and get some sex toys. Like sex toy sales have gone up like 95% since this all started because like people are getting weird. Um, You can also try different things that are more sensually based. You can try tantric massage, erotic massage. Uh, Something that I use with couples when they have libido discrepancies is called sensate focus, which is where one person lies with their eyes closed and the other person just touches them all over their body and like they breathe into it and you put on like sexy music while you're doing it. It's just about touching your skin and breathing and connecting to your partner on this like erotic level and stirring erotic energy. And that can be very beneficial for your relationship. Not everything has to be about getting super freaky. It can also be about enhancing your pair bond and enhancing intimacy, which that's what we're really aiming for. And what about people who aren't uh, in lockdown with a partner? They're single. Virtual dates, is that a thing? Is it worth pursuing, do you reckon? Oh, absolutely. I mean... I used to give the advice before all of this crazy stuff happened that like when you were talking to somebody on a dating app that you should see them within three days so that you can establish a face-to-face connection. But getting uh, romantic right now via video is sort of like the new normal. And I think we need to accept that. Like, is it ever going to be the same as face-to-face? Can it ever be the same as being in the same room with somebody? Not exactly, but that doesn't make it bad and it doesn't make it not worth pursuing because I've heard of lots of people who are like genuinely falling in love, like over Zoom videos. Oh, I suppose it sort of takes it back. It it makes it, I don't know, more naive in a way because you can't have any actual physical contact. So it is more like you're courting for a while. Oh, I don't know. People are getting pretty dirty, nasty on this video (laughs) sex. See, I just descale kettles. I don't know this stuff. Oh yeah. My husband and I used to be long distance. So I'm like a pro at this. So people keep coming to me for these interviews. They're like, how do I have sex on FaceTime? I'm like, oh, you just wait. I was in a long distance relationship as well, Gigi. My husband lived in uh, Russia for three years and I lived in London. And I am not an expert in all. Where were you about five years ago, mate? That's when I needed this stuff. Oh, you should have been following me then, girl. I would have helped you out big time. Man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, doing video video sex is like very much a, a part of all of it's pretty much part of the dating landscape now. It's kind of like the Wild West out there. There are no real rules, which is kind of fun and exciting and a little bit scary at the same time. I mean, there's there's a lot of of room for interpretation because we don't have actual set rules on like how one does video sexing. I don't know if that's a term, but video sex because um, there is there you can't have intercourse. Like there is really only like the mutual masturbation aspect of it. So it's a really good opportunity to learn what your partner likes and how they like to be touched and exploring pleasure because I mean, now's the time to do it. And it's a pretty good way to to start things off. I'd say I had a lot of video sex with my husband before we ever hung out in person. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. 
<laughs> so how do you broach the subject of sex with your partner? I think that's, um, I mean, and that sounds really basic, but I think sometimes sex can become such a loaded issue within a relationship. And often I think sex can just sort of become like an elephant in the room with the person that you are, you know, should be the closest to. So how do you sort of break that weirdness? I mean, I think the first thing that you should do is acknowledge the fact that it is an awkward conversation because we lack the communication and knowledge and language and vocabulary around sexuality. Like we aren't really taught how to have these conversations. I feel like being like, look, I understand this is uncomfortable and like you may not want to talk about this, but sex is a really important part of our relationship and we need to have this conversation. And, and a lot of times I think in those relationships, it can really, really be beneficial to get outside help, whether it's a a sexologist or a coach or a sex therapist, somebody who's qualified, who can be an objective point of view for you and your partner. You can start by going, if you really are not sure how to have these conversations with your partner, it can be very helpful to talk to a therapist or a counselor and get some of the language so that you feel confident and feel built up and ready to have that conversation with your partner that may be uncomfortable and they are awkward and they are not like, they're not fun to have. It's not fun to be like, honey, I want to have more sex. Like, why aren't we having more sex? Like that's no one's like, yeah, I can't wait to talk about that. (laughs) It's It's like acknowledging that it's weird and asking for help when you need it. Do your research. There's so many amazing books like uh, Ian Kerner's uh, She Comes First, uh, Emily Nagoski's Come As You Are. Like, There's so many amazing books out there that can help you learn about your body, about your own anatomy, and give you the tools you need to feel empowered to have those conversations. And know that this is a person who you... I'm assuming a person who you like love and who you trust. So... This, this this should be something that you're able to talk about, something that you feel like you can have a conversation about. And if you're in a relationship that's truly sexless or, or like the other person is not interested in talking to a therapist, is not interested in working on it, then that might not be the best relationship for you. Because if somebody's like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything to work on this. I'm not going to, I don't care about this. I'm not going to do it. Then that says a lot about the relationship that you're in. We were talking earlier briefly about um, mismatched libidos. How important is sexual compatibility and is it something that it should just be innate in a relationship or is it something that has to be learned within a relationship compatibility is i mean there's the first honeymoon phase where your brain is flooded with all these like oxytocin and dopamine when sort of like the whole love at first sight phenomenon where it's like it's also called new relationship energy where you're very excited and that might be when you're having a ton of sex and your brain is like overflowing with all these good feeling chemicals that doesn't necessarily mean that you're compatible it can just be like that you're excited about this new person and when that dissipates sometimes it can burn out and what was like seemed very exciting can sort of turn into sort of a dud of a relationship. We see that stuff happen in the, in my field, I call it the three month rule where like after three months, that's as long as somebody can basically hide who they really are. (laughs) So, but compatibility can also be something that you work on together. You grow together. What it really takes for a relationship to work other than, you know, having things in common and having common goals and stuff is a commitment to the relationship and to the partnership and a willingness from both people to do what it takes to make it work, even if that is really difficult. Sure. And if one of you has, maybe one of you wants to, as you said, Gigi, one of you wants to get weird. How do you approach your partner about that? Because, you know, it might come as a shock to the other person. Maybe the person who wants to instigate it feels a bit vulnerable, sort of opening up this side to to them that they haven't shared before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many ways that you can get 
you can definitely bring up kind of getting weird with your sex life with your partner. Um, the easiest way to come to the conversation is to come from a place of love with them because that is really where you're coming from. It's not just because in all likeliness, it's not just a desire to get weird. It's like you want to get weird with this person because you're excited to try stuff with them. So come to it from a place of empathy and understand that they may get freaked out and be like, you know, I'm I'm uncomfortable having this conversation too. Like this was really scary for me to bring this up to you. And I wanted to talk about it because that's we're in isolation and like when else are we going to do weird stuff? It can be really helpful to do something kind of concrete like an activity. I give couples a sexual bucket list, which is where each couple, each person inside of the couple like writes down 3 to 5 things they'd be willing to try. If you have no idea where to start, I can give couples like things to try. Like, you know, maybe they want to try they want to try BDSM or they want to try spanking. Maybe they want to try role play. Maybe they've never used a vibrator and they want to do that. Or they've never used lube and they want to try that. Maybe they've never even done like sensual massage or something. Those are all things that can be on your list. And then you guys can swap lists and circle the things that sound like something you'd be either really excited about trying, maybe something you'd be like open to trying but haven't thought about before. And that gives you this whole huge batch of stuff that you can explore together. And it's like, you guys can both get excited about it because that's what it's really about. When you, when you kind of try or or getting weird or trying something that like you're completely doing just because the other person wants to do it and you're not feeling it at all, like that's not going to be very hot for anyone. It should definitely be stuff that like you're both open to exploring. And if you are sort of embarking upon new stuff, how do you keep it safe and how do you keep it consensual? it really depends on what you're trying. If it's like a sex toy, you want to be sure that you're buying something that's of high grade material. It's not something that's made from something like a jelly material, which is porous and unsafe. If you're doing something like that's a little more high grade, like let's say like tying each other up, you want to be sure that you're doing your research beforehand. There's definitely a ton of, because we're in lockdown, you can't go to a class, but there's a lot of like online workshops on like how to properly tie knots, like how to properly tie someone up, how to have consensual conversations about your boundaries when you're trying things like BDSM. And you don't need to buy all this like crazy, like intricate gear to try tying each other up. You can easily just use like a silk scarf or like a t-shirt and just like use it and wrap someone's hands in it and tie them above their head. And then they can get out of it very easily. And if you're using rope, if you decide to use rope, keep scissors nearby and you can cut it out. Just be sure that you be sure that you're prepared before you dive into something that could be potentially dangerous. That's that's the real thing. Sure. I like that. Keep scissors nearby. Just in case you're maybe maybe you're doing some gift wrapping earlier on in the day. There you go. Um if you are interested in perhaps exploring non-monogamy in some way so polyamory or thruples or something like that would you that's quite a big thing to sort of not just change a relationship but potentially bring different people into it how do you go about that the most popular kind of fantasy that people bring to me as a sexologist and that I've seen in a lot of the research that I do as a sex researcher is the idea of having a third person in the bedroom with you, multi-partner sex, group sex, that kind of thing. Because it's something that we see a lot in erotic materials. It's a very easy thing to imagine. It can be very erotically charged because the idea of bringing somebody else into the bedroom is not something that's considered conventionally appropriate. Also, we're very turned on by the idea of being sort of like the center of our own movie, having all of these people want us and think of us as this like very sexual erotic creature. And like, that's really like where the 
exciting erotic power can come from, which doesn't necessarily mean, even if this is like the main thing that you fantasize about, it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to bring another person into the bedroom or multiple people into your sex life. It can mean that and there's nothing wrong with that if that is something that you want to explore with your partner. But there's a lot of ways that you can explore that kind of fantasy as far as like dirty talk or exploring erotic material with your partner that has another person and imagining that they're a part of it watching another couple inside of an erotic film, having sex while you're having sex with your partner, that can be a way to experience that fantasy without compromising what the two of you have because there's a huge difference between having a third person or having multiple people come into your sex life than just eroticizing it or having it be a part of your role play fantasy life. So you really have to be able to make that distinction. You can role play and pretend to be somebody that you're not like, you know, they can come and need to fix your pipes because they're coming and doing a COVID-19 check. And then you guys have sex. Like, I don't know. It can get, you can get really weird with it. Um, <laughs> that is a very zeitgeist fantasy. I'm into it. <laughs> Honestly, people love hazmat suits. It's very, it's very, very fetishy. People are into it. There was actually a I don't know which company it was, but there were like a bunch of fetish companies that donated all of their like latex gloves and hazmat material that were meant for fetish stuff like to the NHS. Oh, no way. Oh, my gosh. That's so kind of them. (laughs) Um, Yeah, really. Hey, it's time to get weird. It's time to get weird. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on, Gigi. Of course. It was my pleasure. I am leaving this conversation feeling uh, informed and slightly horny, and I think that's the way it should be. Uh, If you've enjoyed this show, then please subscribe to the full series of Deal With It on your favourite podcast platforms, where you can also, if you fancy it, give us a little five-star review. That would be lovely. Everyone likes a five-star review. I make my husband do that after we have sex, actually. You have been listening to Deal With It, brought to you by Corsidal Toothpaste. Corsidal Toothpaste.